Well, good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And I'd like to also welcome you if you're a visitor. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Thanks for joining us today. It's fun to see some familiar faces out there visiting today. We're glad you're here. You come to us right at the end of the year and at the end of a series that we've been doing this semester on the book of Philippians. And this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. If you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find one in a chair somewhere in front of you if you need one. But in those Bibles, you'll find that on page 982. We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Let's pray together and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege it is to come be with your people this morning, to come uh, together in corporate worship uh, to give honor and praise to you. We thank you that as we come, you, you hear our prayers, you hear our confession, you speak words of assurance of pardon to us, you invite us in, and you speak to us. You speak to us through your word. You're not a God who remains hidden, but one who reveals yourself. And so as we turn to your word now, would would the lights come on for us? Would you uh, open these words up to us that we might know you better? And we ask that you do this by the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. So too, we turn this morning. As you notice, obviously, we're getting here right near the end of Philippians. Uh, We'll be wrapping up this series next week. And though Paul has more to say, a little bit more to say about what it means to to faithfully follow Jesus, in the passage we've got right now, verses 8 and 9 here, we we see the last couple real exhortations uh, that Paul gives to, uh, to the Philippians and to us, his, his last imperatives, these you know, imperatival verbs, do this, these commands, these urgings and exhortations, they, they come to, they're, they're wrapping up here at this point in the letter. Um, for Paul, as he speaks to us about what does it mean to live a life in relationship with God. And he's got a, a basic point here. He's going to talk to us about the fundamental importance of the things that we think and how our thinking affects all of our lives. And not only that, he's going to talk to us a little bit here about where that thinking, the content of that thinking comes from. Like, what are the things that we are to dwell on in our minds? Those are the things that Paul wrestles with here this morning. And so we're going to see, see four things here. We're going to see what we, that, uh, excuse me, we're going to see that we are called to engage and called to discern. We're called to think and we're called to do. Those four things. To engage, discern, to think and to do. First, to engage. Read, read again with me in verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And though it might not strike us on, on the surface here, Paul is speaking the language in his day of cultural engagement. 
He is very much engaged with the thinking of the people around him and the thinking of the congregation that he is addressing. Because again, though we wouldn't recognize it in English, the Greek terms that are used here for all these words, you know, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is pure, the words that he uses there are uh, infrequent at best in the New Testament. And some of them don't uh, appear anywhere else in the New Testament. There's no other list like this, and there's no no other collection of vocabulary like this in the New Testament. However... For the people who first heard this, this would have been very common. This would have been a very common type of list and very common words for them in their Greco-Roman culture. This was very typical uh, language of morality and virtue in the Greco-Roman world. Okay, so Paul is doing something interesting here. He's speaking to them about the important things that they are to think about and dwell on, and he self-consciously chooses not to use very familiar, for example, Old Testament language. Instead, he uses self-consciously very uh, recognizable terms that, w- that his listeners would have heard in the culture around him. They would have read this and thought, this is exactly the same kind of thing that I read when I pick up a Greek writer and he talks about what the virtuous life is supposed to look like. He's using those words for a reason with them. He's self- self-consciously speaking to them in a way that sends them into their culture the culture that surrounds them, uh, rather than pulls them out. Now, Paul has said earlier in the letter to them in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, look, we are citizens of heaven. So we have to have our minds on our Lord who is to come back from heaven. He knows that our citizenship is in heaven. But for him, that doesn't mean that we pull out of this world. In fact, for him, it means so much more that we are to engage the world that we are in. See, Paul had the vocabulary, the Old Testament vocabulary, where he could have spoken about these concepts as he normally does. If you've read much of Paul and his letters, you know that often, most often, the images that he uses, the stories that he tells, the examples that he uses are all mined from the Old Testament. That was his religious and thought world. And he uses it most often in his letters, even when he's writing to people like these, people that are not Jewish by birth. So he's got those sets of things he could use, but instead he gives his direction to them in a language they would have recognized from their own culture. Because Paul knows and he wants us to know that this is God's world. This is God's world. And so we should expect to see God's truth breaking through all around us. Even at the hands and in the words of people that might not actually know God. Because this is his world. He knows that there is truth and justice and beauty and honor to be found all around us. And Paul puts this to use. If you're uh, in, in Acts chapter 17, the very famous scene of Paul as he goes to the city of Athens to proclaim the gospel there. Paul is on a missionary journey, the same kind of journey that brought him to Philippi originally where he planted this church. Well, he's in Athens And as he goes uh, into Athens, he's awestruck by the the beauty and the magnificence of uh, the city. Even at that point in history, Athens' uh, heydays had had begun to wane, but it was still considered the intellectual and the artistic uh, capital of the the Greco-Roman world. And so as he comes into the city, he notices all kinds of things like this. He looks around and he sees that there are temples everywhere. And he even passes one that's got a little plaque on it, uh, a statue that says, To an unknown God. Because they were so religious, they want to make sure they didn't leave somebody out. And 
he, as he begins to preach, he's invited to come and speak to, at the Areopagus, the, the intellectual hub of Athens where all the great ideas were explained and defended and debated. And so he's, he's given the invitation to address the intellectual elites of his world. And he starts this way. He says, I come into the city and I notice you even have this altar to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you today. Let me tell you about the true God. And then he goes on and at two different times in this short sermon, he, he quotes uh, their own poets to them as he brings in elements of their culture and captures them. One of which he says, he quotes a poet who said this, we are all God's offspring. And he says, that's exactly right. Now in the background, that poet, as he wrote, was speaking about Zeus. We're all Zeus's children. And Paul steps into their culture and says, there is a glimpse of light here, but let me tell you, the God is not Zeus, it is Yahweh. Let me talk to you about what it means to be a child of his. You see, Paul was very comfortable with going into the culture and having his eyes open to truth wherever he found it, to understand it, to digest it as a believer, and to, be, and to use it in his interactions with others. Because Paul knew this is God's world. The theological way of saying this is this, this kind of language comes from what's called common grace. God, our God is a God who sends, uh, as the Bible says, he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. God pours out his gracious gifts in so many ways over people who love him and people who shake their fist at him. That God is making himself known in some of the, um, some of the darkest corners of the world and culture even. He says there, because we live in God's world, there is true light to be found. And so Paul is encouraging them to engage. He's using the language of engagement when he speaks the vocabulary of the culture around him. Now there's a, a couple implications for us. And one is simply this, that we too are invited to engage the culture and the world around us. Okay, many of us here are students. You're William & Mary students, grad students, professors. You live in an intellectual hub of our world. And this says to us, you should step into that with both feet and be glad to be there. You have an open invitation from the gospel to go and be in the middle of the intellectual happenings of our world. They matter. And you as a believer can go with confidence knowing that God is a God of truth. And he goes before you um, into the university as you wrestle intellectually with the things of the world. For all of us, it means as we go into the culture and, uh, that we ought to have our eyes open that uh, for movies, for books, and our music, and our TV, everything about our, our engagement with the world, Paul tells us to engage, to go and be a part of the culture around us. Now, you can immediately see, and for some of us it's uh, the alarm going off in our heads, that this, this brings a certain challenge for us. Because it challenges a, a certain brand of a very conservative approach to Christianity. Uh, a kind of tendency that, that has an impulse to withdraw from the world. And often what goes with this is the uh, spoken or unspoken belief that at some point in our history there was a cultural moment where everything was just right, where all the cultural ingredients were set up just right to be favorable to Christianity, where there was a huge and right overlap between Christian culture and our culture around us. If only we could get back to that moment. And maybe we all have a different moment in mind, but uh, for many of us, maybe it's, it's something like this, you know, this, this picture of maybe it's 1950s America, right? Uh, when Ward and June Cleaver lived and when Beaver didn't get into too much trouble and when everybody recognized the authority of the Bible and it was even taught in the schools. Maybe that's our moment in our minds. 
But see, what we forget is that the Bible comes and challenges every moment in history. It challenges every culture. At some point, it critiques every culture. Because why not stop at the, why stop at the 1950s? Why don't we go back to uh, maybe something closer to, the, closer to the source? Why don't we go back to the early church? Because if, any time, if ever there was a time when they had it right, surely it would be this. But the problem is you open the Bible and you see what Paul actually writes to first century Christians, most of which was like, how could this be going on? <laughs> Have you forgotten the gospel? Have you forgotten how it's to play out in every area of life? You see, all the exhortations come in Scripture to people in the first century and to us because we are people who are so quick to run off the rails. And every culture does as well. Now, just take the 1950s for a minute. Let's say that was our moment of choice. And we look back and we think about in how many ways, honestly, the culture, say, had a very similar uh, sexual ethic to the Bibles. Okay? That there was widespread agreement about what marriage is and who should enter into it. There was widespread agreement about sexual activity and what was appropriate and what wasn't and the timing of that. Now, it's another matter entirely as far as whether people really lived out that belief. But that was, there was a common cultural understanding that was very close to the Bibles. That's true, but take the 1950s also and, and now com- compare that culture with the biblical ethic of, of um, the equality of all human beings and racial reconciliation. And you'll see there's something very different culturally and even within the church. Often, uh, large segments of people who were very much against any sort of integration, they looked and said separate but equal is a godly and true value, you see? And it wasn't. And that is the point where the Bible came and critiqued that culture. Now, you take our time, and those things are exactly flipped, right? Because you'd go and talk to anybody around you and say, of course we're all created equal. Of course there ought to be racial harmony and reconciliation. But the Bible's take on sexuality, I can't go there. It's restrictive, it's inhibitive. You see what I'm saying? Different cultural moment, different challenge where the gospel comes in and challenges it. And Paul says that that is always true and, the, and we can step into the culture without fear and engage it. And that's in fact, as we're going to see, exactly what Christ did with us. That he, like Paul, unafraid to engage our culture. Now the second thing we see here is this engagement, but the second thing we see is, is a call to real discernment. As well, if you see right uh, about two thirds of the way through verse eight, there when he's when he's getting through that list, and he says uh, whatever is commendable. Well, there, there's a grammatical shift there. He now says it's almost as if he said, you know, there's a dash. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And, and here's why I highlight that. I mean, Paul's been going through talking about seeing out in the culture the things that are beautiful. And he stops here. And if there's anything excellent, if there's anything commendable, he's not summing up everything that came before. He's qualifying it. He's saying all that stuff the world brings to us and says is excellent. If there's anything truly excellent and right in it, and he implies there is. But he says, latch on to that. Think about those things. Okay, so in the midst of his cultural engagement, he says we must also be very discerning as well. We must see what is truly good, what is truly right, and we must hold on to those things. See, Paul knows that discernment involves bringing the word of God to bear on everything around us. That we are people who have a real norm. We come to scripture and we find out, as difficult as it may be sometimes, to wrestle through specific passages of scripture. We see God speaking to us, telling us about the world, telling us what we're to value and how to. And we see him critiquing all cultures, including our own. And he says that we are to be wise and discerning as we take in and and are exposed to the things around us in our world. 
Just as embracing the culture challenges a certain very conservative brand of Christianity, the discernment part challenges a very liberal brand of Christianity as well. Because uh, any brand of Christianity that would say uh, we can essentially, we can adopt anything the world brings to us as long as no one gets hurt, the one fundamental rule, but anything else is up for grabs, that brand of Christianity needs to be challenged at just this point where we see there really are real norms that not everything is good and we're called to discern the difference between what is good and what is difficult or what is good and what is, uh, and what is untrue and impure and not commendable. And here's where the challenge is for some of us, that we wouldn't simply be consumers of our culture, that we, at the end of the day, for ourselves or at those appropriate moments in interactions with our friends, at the end of the day, there are points at which we have to say, this is just wrong. This actually points in the direction away from God and his good purposes. And loving you, friend, means telling you that, what, that, that this is not a good, it will destroy you. We're called to be discerning. And just thinking about a couple points of application for this. Many of us are in the process of raising children now. Some of us will do that down the road. And all of us as a church together, when a child is baptized in our church, we say again that we will assist the parents in the nurture and admonition, the raising of their children, that we very much do this in one sense together. And this is a reminder to us that we need to want our children and help our children grow to be discerning about the world around us. That means not pulling them out of the world But it also means not throwing them into the world without teaching them to swim. And it would be a lot easier to simply erect the barriers than to teach our children to wisely navigate the world around them with their eyes on Jesus. And it's truthfully the same for us as we grow in these ways as well, that we're to be wise participants in the culture and of cultural content, that we are careful, though, at the same time of what we swallow, that we are discerning, that we're able to see what is good and what is not, what leads us, in fact, to the God of all truth and what tears us away. Okay, so we're to engage, we're to discern. The third thing we come to, the thing that's right here on the surface in verse 8, is that we are to think. He says, think about these things, and he gives us a, gives us a list that we'll look at in just a moment. But, but there are four things here that he tells us about thinking, and, and very obvious things, but let's just point them out so that we can see what's underlying Paul's thought here. Four things we see about thinking. The first is this, that we are continually confronted by both good and bad options of what to fill our minds with. Like he, he goes through this list and he says, think about these things, meaning not the other stuff. Not that, not that which is not commendable, not the impure, not the unjust, not the ugly. He says that is not what we are to fill ourselves with. He says think about these things. And in the same way for us, we have similar choices, not only what we think, but what we eat. Imagine yourself going down the aisle of a grocery store. And you can pick out, you can pick something off the shelf and you turn it around and read the list of ingredients. And at the end you could go, you know, uh, this, is, this would be pretty good food for me. I can pronounce all the names of the things that are in this list. Or you could go a little further down the aisle and pull something off, and you could read uh, the back, and you could realize, I don't know what this is, but it can't be good for me, (laughs) right? Same grocery store, same aisle. There are things that are going to nourish you well and things that are not. Paul says that we're confronted continually with so much, and there are some that it will be good and nourishing for us, and some that won't. Paul exhorts us to think about what is truly good and true and lovely and commendable. Okay, so we're continually confronted with a choice of both. The second thing here we see about thinking is that you choose what you think about. 
You choose what you think about, what your mind dwells on, and what you feed it with. Your mind is active and not passive. Now, immediately, you may be thinking, what about the times when I'm, you know, my thoughts just go down an alley they, they shouldn't go down? Well, I mean, liken it to, to driving your car in a city you're not familiar with. You've got a map. You know where you're supposed to be going. And you've likely had the experience where you took a wrong turn and you're suddenly going down the wrong street in the wrong direction. Well, what you typically do is you turn around, get back on the main street, head back in the direction you were headed. You're making a choice to do that, or do you uh, slow down? Maybe pull your car off the side of the road for a while. Maybe keep going down that road. You see, we're making choices all the time, even when we find ourselves suddenly in the middle of a wrong turn. And the choice for us is to turn around right away and go back. In other words, Paul's reminding us that there are moral implications for our thinking, ethical implications for our thinking, that we, when we think, which we are doing all the time, we are doing so in virtuous ways or ways that are not virtuous, ways that are healthy or ways that will kill us. Even our daydreaming matters, that we are active and not passive thinkers. Okay, you choose what you think about. Third thing, the content of your thinking has an incredible power to shape you. What you spend your time thinking about will shape you. And so Paul gives us this list of things that are to be shaping to us because he knows that some things that we think about will nourish us and strengthen us and some things will make us sick and ultimately kill us. Uh, That our thinking has a spiritual weight weight to it with enormous implications for us. Uh, in our front yard, uh, among the plants that are still alive at this point, we have some hydrangeas. If you know anything about hydrangeas, they're the ones kind of with the big ball of flowers, and they're typically either red or blue, pink or blue. And hydrangeas, their color depends entirely upon what's in the soil. It's based on the pH level of the soil. And I'm probably going to flip this, but it's something like if the pH level of the soil is high, then you're going to have pink blossoms. And if the pH level of your soil is low, you're going to have blue blossoms. Same plant, and you stick it in there, and based on what nourishes it, you're going to have a completely different effect. Paul's saying the same thing here. Things that we nourish our minds on are going to, are going to change our lives one way or the other. Our lives are going to reflect the thinking of our hearts. So the content of your thinking has great power to change you. And then, and then finally, here on the surface, we are called to think about the good. Here's the way he lists it. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. He says, think about these things. Pursue these things. If you remember as a kid um, how, fascinating it is to have, how fascinating magnets are, Right? You, if you ever remember as a kid playing with one and seeing what they pick up and what they don't, right? You can go and you can, anything that's got iron in it, you can pick it up with your magnet. And if you take it over to your uh, can of Coke, it's not going to pick it up because it's made out of aluminum and it doesn't pick up plastic. And it does, you see, it only attracts certain things. And Paul says that about our minds. He says, we are to be, we are to latch on to these things, that we are to draw them in, what is honorable what is true, what is lovely, what is commendable. We're called to think about and choose the good. Okay, here we are. We're called to engage, we're called to discern, we're called to think. But finally, Paul says, we're called to do. 
There's something that we do. See, at the end of the day, Paul is not simply focusing on this kind of abstract, these abstract principles, but he's trying to give us a picture of a pattern of life that lives itself out in transformed actions, in transformed lives. See, Paul focuses on the true and the honorable, the just, the lovely, the commendable in a lived-out relationship with God. In fact, here in verse 9, he says, Look, you have seen these things at work in me. Look at what he says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever you've seen in me, do these things. St. Paul, who in another letter said this, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Because my eyes are on what is good and I follow him and you're seeing a picture of that lived out if you follow my pattern of life. He expects us to do the good as well as think it. And at the end, you see that glorious picture at the end there? He said, as we do this, we will know the God of peace. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen another spot where Paul was exhorting them to change life. And he says, you will know the peace of God. And here he goes straight to the heart of it. He says, you will know the God of peace. You'll be connected to him because this is God's world. And he comes and he rescues his people that they might be in relationship with him. And he comes and he speaks to us and he expects and calls us to change lives. Now we get to this last section on do. And for many of us, maybe deep down what we think is finally just tell me something to do because we love to do. And there is a right gospel place for that. But you notice everything that came before. God's doing for us. We put our eyes on Jesus. We see first what he has done for us in rescuing us. Taking our little chart of how we behave this day, this week, and all the gold stars, and he ripped it up and he tossed it in the backyard and he said, we're not dealing on that basis anymore. All your goodness comes from me. Your salvation is one in me. There is no more record keeping. Now, what does it mean to live a beautiful life? with our eyes on Jesus as we see the good and live it out. Paul says that we will know the God of peace. Here in Advent, maybe it's good for us to be reminded that for Paul, as he followed this pattern of life, he was ultimately following the pattern of his Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself. Here's what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Paul is saying as we live lives following Jesus, we know this one, the Prince of Peace. That's what stands at the center of our lives now. That is the one that we have been connected to by the good and sacrificial work of Jesus, the Prince of Peace Himself. For Paul, we are now welded to Jesus. We are in Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Prince of Peace. In this Advent season, as we talk about thinking about these things, as we look in Scripture, see what is commendable and pure and true, and as we go out into the world around us and recognize it in some of the most surprising places around us, Paul says, may we think about these things. May we be changed by them. And may we know better the one who stands behind all that is good, the Prince of Peace.
Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see what is good and commendable and true and pure and lovely. May we live lives that are transformed in accordance with those things. May we love what is good. May we bring light where there is darkness. In this Advent season, as we look back and remember your coming, we we thank you. We thank you that darkness did not have the final say. That in spite of the brokenness of this world, you did not turn away, but you chose to engage. You chose to step away from your throne and into flesh that you might come into this broken world, not scared by the cultures of this world, but coming to transform and heal, rescue them. Help us as we seek to engage and to discern and to think and to do. Be with us as we follow you, our Prince of Peace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.